Thanks for listening to KVOO Portland, 90.7 FM in the Portland metro area and all over the world at kvoo.fm. Good evening. You're listening to Transpositive here on KBOO Community Radio. Tonight we're talking with Ramona Escayo, who has a uh, book opening um, on the 25th. And we're going to be talking with Ramona about their book and about um, their art and about their life. Uh, Ramona, welcome to Transpositive. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks. So if we could all go around and sort of do introductions, and if you could please say your name, uh, your preferred pronouns, and anything else you'd like to share about yourself. Um, why don't we start with you, Nicolette? Hi, I'm Nicolette. I'm a co-host here on Transpositive, and I use AM or they, them pronouns. Great. Um, yeah, and I'm Ramona. I also go by Mo or Mona Escayo, um, and I'm an artist and activist. Um, and yeah, I'm just in the final stages of um, producing my first book about top surgery. It's called I'm Having Top Surgery, An Illustrated Guide for You and Me. Um, it's coming out next Saturday, the 25th. Thanks. And Ramona, what are your pronouns? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, they, them. Thank you. And my name is Emma Lugo. Um, I'm also a co-host of Transpositive. And my pronouns are she and her. Um, who would like to ask the first question? Nicolette, would you like to start? Sure. Well, um, Ramona, why don't you start by telling us about yourself? Yeah, great. Um, yeah, my name is Ramona, as I said. I am from Portland. I grew up here. Um, I've uh, moved back in the past couple of years um, actually to have top surgery because the um, Oregon Health Plan is one of the best coverages that you can get as a low-income person. Um, and yeah, a lot of my artwork is um, around storytelling, um, political education. Um, I also am a designer for a lot of mutual aid projects. Um, yeah, and I don't know if there's anything more specific, but that's it for now. Great, so what inspired you to become an artist? Yeah, um, I actually, I studied sculpture in school, um, but I'm a self-taught designer and illustrator. Um, I was really excited about kind of three-dimensional work as a student in college. Um, and then as soon as I left, I felt like that was pretty impractical for the kind of work that I wanted to do in the world, um, in my communities. So yeah, I think a lot of, especially during the pandemic and the organizing around the uprising um, has just sort of led me along this path of being a designer and um, yeah, creating, using design in order to um, support organizing efforts. And specifically in the case of this book, thinking about how to use illustration and comics um, and, combining words and images in order to make information more accessible, especially around things like gender affirming healthcare, which are, um, you know, heavily gatekept and, um, and there's a lot of information that's really hard to access. Great. So what can you tell us about this book? Yeah. Um, it's a 96 page book. Um, it's about 
trans healthcare broadly, specifically, it's about top surgery, how to get it. Um, it started out as a zine when I, right before I got top surgery in 2019, I decided I wanted to be able to give something to my friends and family to sort of explain what I was doing and why. Um, and have something to start the conversation without having to actually have those conversations. Uh, and I just realized there wasn't really a resource out there like this. So this book is sort of meant both for trans people and for our loved ones, people who are pursuing top surgery, but also gender affirming surgery more broadly. Um, there's some more specific how to's in the book around like the different techniques and procedures. There's things about questions you can ask with your surgeon, what to expect from the waiting process. Uh, and then there's also contributor interviews um, in the book of other trans people from my community um, who are talking about their experiences. And then finally, there's conversation guides um, that you can use as a trans person if you're trying to talk to loved ones about your surgery and also um, if you're a loved one trying to approach those conversations and thinking about how to um, move towards healing and understanding rather than fracture and thinking about trans healthcare as you know maintaining connection as a really important way um, of ensuring that trans people can thrive and survive. Well, that sounds great, thank you. Emma, do you have anything you'd like to ask? Sure. Um, so let's start just by talking about top surgery, because there may be a lot of people listening to this program uh, who don't know what top surgery is, um, since this is on the radio. Mm -hmm. um, Ramona, can you explain what is top surgery? Yeah, so top surgery is sort of the like colloquial term for it. Um, it's a reconstructive surgery, basically, um, it alters your chest size and shape um, through the removal of tissue or the introduction of implants. My book is largely about um, tissue removing top surgery, which is often considered a procedure that trans men pursue for, you know, a flat chest, but really it's um, anyone who wants to change the size um, or shape of their chest, um, that would be considered top surgery. And why would somebody choose to do that? Yeah, so there's a lot of different reasons that someone might wanna pursue top surgery. And I think the important thing to remember is, you know, I describe it most broadly um, as a way to make your body feel like home. Some people who pursue top surgery experience dysphoria. Some people don't. It can be about, you know, survival, trying to um, feel more safe in your body as a gender nonconforming person. Um, for me, it was a lot about dysphoria and, you know, re having a realization that um, having um, a chest with curves was impacting my daily life incredibly negatively, um, you know, for over a decade. And, um, and so this is a procedure that you can get um, to flatten your chest um, and, you know, help you feel more alive in your body. You mentioned uh, that part of the reason that you wrote the book was to help people understand the, the ways in which they can access these services. Um, can you talk about uh, both why Oregon was a place that was maybe um, someplace that was easier to access these services? And how would somebody go about accessing those services? Yeah, great question. Um, so Oregon, and uh, this is a resource that I recommend anyone check out. Um, uh, the Human Rights Campaign has a website that has a map of the United States that shows which states offer protections. Um, specifically in Oregon, the Oregon Health Plan has protections for gender-affirming care, and Oregon has um, bans on uh, exclusive 
policies basically for insurance companies um, to exclude trans people. So Oregon has a lot of protections in place for trans people. And there are 20 other states plus Washington DC who have similar protections um, for gender affirming care. Specifically Medicaid um, in Oregon and these other states protects gender affirming care, which is really important for low income trans people to be able to access um, these kinds of services. And yeah, my top surgery, it can be as expensive as $10,000 or more. Um, and that was entirely covered by Oregon Health Plan, which is Oregon's Medicaid program. Um, I'd like to ask a question of both you and uh, Nicolette, if you're open to that, Nicolette. Sure. Okay. So um, I've heard, Ramona, I've heard you use the term trans and non-binary mm -hmm. um, for identification purposes. Mm -hmm. And I was curious if you could talk about that, because I think some people might not understand how you could be both trans and non-binary. And I'd like each of you to address that question in your own way. Yeah, um, uh, I'm sorry, who do you want to go first? I mean, I could I could just kind of, so. Um, the way Whoever. I, yeah, the, the way I view it um, is transgender is really an umbrella term. It's a term that just means not identifying with the gender you were assigned at birth. And so there's lots of different ways to be trans. There's not just binary trans people like trans men and trans women. Non-binary people fall under that umbrella as well, especially since non-binary people can in some cases experience gender dysphoria. Not that you need to have gender dysphoria to be trans, but that is something that some of us can experience. And um, that's why you know many people may identify as both trans and non-binary but there are also people who identify as non-binary but not trans because they just choose not to call themselves trans and it that's also valid yeah i think that's a great explanation um i think i have a pretty similar perspective one of my favorite definitions of the idea of transness is from susan Stryker, a trans historian um and she talks about transness as basically, you know, you're born in one fixed position and it's any movement away from that fixed position and place that you were born. So I, I think that's a really beautiful and expansive way of thinking about transness. And to me, you know, if we're thinking about gender as not just a binary one side being you know man one side being woman and thinking about it more as like you know a limitless expanse of possibilities that idea of being starting in one single point and moving anywhere away from that point kind of like I don't know I think of like a, a globe or something really big so for me I guess that's what non-binary means is you know you're trans because you're born in one place and you grow up and you're not in the same place. You're not in the same gender that was assigned to you as a baby. Um, and that's why I identify as non-binary and trans. I would say I don't love the term non-binary personally because uh, I think it just often gets confused as like a third gender category from man and woman. And to me, it's just so much bigger than that. And I'm not sure that's necessarily understood by the public generally in the common use of non-binary today. Yeah, and I know a lot of people who feel that way, that's also a valid way to view it as well. I mean, I, I do kind of view gender as like this whole big spectrum and I'm just somewhere in the middle of the spectrum and I'm not on any particular end, but I can understand how using terms like binary and non-binary simplifies such a complex and complicated structure.
Nicolette, it's your turn. Would you like to ask a question? Uh, yeah. So how can people get a copy of your book? Yeah, come to the release. Um, it's going to be Saturday, June 25th at Open Hand Health in Southeast Portland. Um, it'll be from 5 to 8 p.m. I have 200 copies free for trans people with priority to trans people of color. Um, and then the books will be for sale as well. And then I'll be releasing information pretty soon about how to order um, after the event once I kind of figure out how many are sold. So is your book, is it a zine, a zine or is it is it a book or? Yeah, it's a self-published book. Um, it's resographed, which is a print technique that's sort of, I describe it as a cross between a Xerox and a screen print. So every book, book is a unique print um, and it's bound, spiral bound. Yeah. I, I've seen some of your graphic um, illustrations from uh, both your presentation in, in person mm -hmm. and your website. And mm -hmm. um, you have a unique style. Can you talk a little bit about your style as an artist? Yeah, thank you for that question. This project is pretty unique for me because it's all digital drawing. Most of my illustrations are hand cut paper. I think my work is pretty imaginative. Um, that's for me, making pictures is a really freeing activity and allows me to, you know, think about things that don't exist in real life. One of my favorite illustrations from the book is a nipple conveyor belt. Um, I was thinking a lot about uh, hospitals and how capitalism makes us move in and out of hospitals so quickly. And it's really not about our care, but it's about getting us in and out as fast as, um, as they can. So I really like this image of the nipple conveyor belt um, and uh, really how hospitals dehumanize us and thinking about how, how to create an image that would kind of reflect that. I think that's a, a fun example of some of the ways that I make images. Yeah, I often use a lot of color. Um, this, the risograph technique is pretty colorful, but the book itself is um, monochromatic. How long have you been making books? This is my first book. I've been working on this book since 2019. So it's a pretty big project for me. And is your book, is it mostly visual or is it a lot of text as well? Yeah, I would say it's a pretty good balance between um, text and images. There's sort of like a series of essays um, and often the, the words and images are working together to explain concepts or, you know, introduce characters. Have other artists contributed to your book or is all of the artwork created by you? Yeah, all of the artwork is created by me. I have five contributors who share their stories and um, we all I work together with each of them to create portraits that sort of reflected how they wanted to be portrayed. One of my favorites um, is a contributor, Ignacio, and they wanted to represent their gender as a universe. So that's a pretty fun image that we made. Do you think that the experience of top surgery is different for different people? Yeah, absolutely. I really wanted to bring in other people's stories because I had a really positive experience. And I think one of the things that's important to me about this book is that um, I'm just really talking about the complexity of gender affirming surgery and trans healthcare more broadly. A lot of people talk about, you know, it's really challenging. It can take years to get this kind of surgery. So some people talk about, you know, the financial stress of figuring this all out, um, the stress of, you know, if you have a complication. Um, I think for a lot of people, it's a really transformative experience. It's something a lot of trans people wait years for. For me, it was really healing um, and a magical time. But yeah, I think it's different for everyone. and. I think that's reflected in the book. Even after um, someone has had top surgery, which involves removal of tissue, 
Are there still concerns around safety? Yeah, in terms of, you know, like harassment or violence, is that what you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. I think for some people, top surgery can make you more gender conforming. And for some people, like for myself, I think it makes me more gender non-conforming. So it really kind of, it can depend. And, you know, if you're wearing a shirt, no one really knows what's underneath your shirt. So, you know, people are born with and like grow up to have all different kinds of trust. So there's not necessarily a single answer to that. Safety is often really conditional um, and related to things like race and body and yeah, where you are and who you're with. So I don't know that there's a definitive answer. I think um, it really depends and a lot of people aren't really interested in passing. And so safety is of course a concern, but not necessarily a deciding factor in whether or not they'll get top surgery. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, and I feel this way too, is there can be a certainty that comes with it. You know, like the idea of surgery can be really scary. You know, there's blood, there's the recovery, there's um, anesthesia, but also a lot of people, and I feel this myself, we talk about this in the book of just the joy of being in the body that you want to be in. Um, and so I think in some ways it can be a really simple decision. Are any of the people in your book people who don't necessarily identify as either non-binary or trans people? Um, no. The large focus of the book is around gender-affirming care, although, you know, you can be a cis woman and have top surgery. You know, I talk about this, but like any kind of breast augmentation, I would also consider that, you know, gender-affirming care, even if you are a cis woman, um, but largely this book is talking about the experiences of trans people. And I think especially that's important at a time when gender affirming care, especially for trans kids is being attacked in many places, not Oregon at the moment, but um, many other places. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just, I'm curious because I mean, I remember when Tig Notaro mm -hmm. um, had, and Tig Notaro was very out about everything that they went through and I mean but I don't think that TIG identifies as trans or non-binary but I think that in a way they're an advocate for just you know being completely comfortable with your body no matter what kind of a body you have. In TIG Notaro's case it was cancer related and I do talk about specifically the difference between like a cancer-related mastectomy and a top surgery. And um, this is like in particular interest to me because um, prior to getting top surgery, I had a breast cancer scare. And that was actually something that was used in order to gatekeep me from accessing top surgery prior to being able to access it. So I think it really is a big misconception um, because you know, a cancer-related mastectomy and a gender-affirming surgery, like top surgery, are very similar, but they have very different purposes. Um, and I think the largest one is just when you work with a gender-affirming surgeon, it's really about having a result that makes you feel good in your body. If it's a cancer-related mastectomy, it's about removing all the tissue that could be harmful to you. And so the results can look really different um, and the intended impact can be really different. You know, there are trans people who have a high risk for cancer um, who may opt to have all of their um, tissue removed just for that preventative measure. Um, I think it's also an important thing to talk about because um, trans healthcare is also cancer prevention and I think there's a lot of misconceptions around people who get top surgery that because you've had some tissue removed that you can no longer be susceptible to cancer. And that's just not true. A lot of surgeons retain some tissue so you can have a flat appearance. So I think there's a lot of overlaps and 
yes, they're both medical reasons to have a similar procedure, but they are quite different. Thanks so much for making that clarification. I, I, I think that what I found most interesting in what you said was that it's actually a form of gatekeeping against trans people. That's really interesting. Yeah, specifically in my case, it was, I had to get a lot of exams in order to be approved for top surgery. Um, and I think it was, you know, I think if we're just looking at the two procedures, there's one that's heavily questioned, heavily gatekept, and one that's often just seen as medically necessary, and no one's gonna blink an eye. So I think if we're really looking at the different processes, gatekeeping is really, you know, one of the big things that's preventing trans people from receiving this incredibly essential care um, that extends our lives and makes our lives, um, you know, so much more accessible for us to live fully in. So yeah, I think gatekeeping yeah. is a lot of what the what the book is about um, and a lot of the reasons why this information is inaccessible to begin with. Well, thank you so much, Ramona. Do you have any more questions, um, Nicolette? Well, I was just going to ask, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about your personal journey or your experiences with gender or gender-affirming care? Yeah, I, I appreciate that question. I think something that I talk about in the book that I think is really important, especially when talking to a cisgender audience, is, you know, there's a tension between transness not being about our bodies and also the experience of being trans and being in a body. And in writing this book and understanding that this is gonna be read by some cisgender people, it's really important for me that my audience understands that surgery is not something that all trans people do. And surgery is also not what makes you trans. So I think when I'm you know, envisioning a better world for trans people, and I talk about this a lot in the book, you know, there's a page that just says, this is about autonomy. And I think that's that's the main takeaway I want people to have is that this is just an option that should be available to everyone. It should be free and it should be taken as seriously as other forms of medical care, just like a cancer-related mastectomy, yeah. Thank you. Um, so one more time, um, if you can remind us, uh, when is your uh, opening and where, where is it? And, um, and then how can people find out more about you? Yeah, so the opening, the book release is at Open Hand Health um, on Saturday, June 25th from 5 to 8 p.m. Open Hand Health is at 2410 Southeast 10th Avenue for anyone who's curious. Um, masks are going to be required and there will be ASL interpretation. I'm going to be giving a talk at 6 p.m. Um, and that will also be um, streamed on my Instagram, which is at R-I-M-O underscore S-K-Y-O. If anyone wants to learn more about me or learn more about the book, you can check out my website, which is R-I-M-O-S-K-Y-O dot com. Thank you. We've been talking tonight with Ramona Scayo. Ramona, thank you so much for joining us on Transpositive. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Good evening. You're listening to Transpositive here on KBOO Community Radio 90.7 FM here in Portland. We're going to be talking about current events with Sheila. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Well, just that I am Sheila. Um, well, I'm a trans writer. I've, I've written short stories and plays, and um, and I have some stuff on uh, with the publisher Blue Forge. 
And I uh, am an earlier transitioner, so I come from an early stage of transgender awareness. And sometimes I speak out of that um, with the idea of um, that sometimes our elders have have a perspective on the present moment that goes with the reminiscence of a time when things were not both uh, as comfortable or as comfortable as they are right now, but it was a different world. Great, so thanks for that. Okay, thank you. Um, Nicolette, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Nicolette. I'm one of the co-hosts of this show, and I use AM or they, them pronouns. And we've also got uh, Jean Bryant joining us tonight. Um, Jean, would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Jean Bryant. Um, I have been absent from the show for quite a while, but um, I also am a uh, past co-host and I thought I would join because uh, Sheila was here. All right. Um, so for tonight's show, the, we're talking about current events and there's a lot going on right now. Uh, we're going to start with Nicolette because Nicolette has kind of a short piece that they'd like to share. And then we're going to move over to Sheila who has um, quite a really just a lot of really great thoughts about what's going on right now and current events um, from from her perspective with some wisdom and experience. So let's start with Nicolette. Nicolette, what's going on with you? All right. So uh, the story I wanted to talk about tonight, the NFL just welcomed their first transgender cheerleader. Uh, Justine Lindsay, a trans woman of color, just joined the cheerleading squad for the North Carolina NFL team, the Carolina Panthers. Lindsay disclosed her trans status on her paperwork for her audition for the team, but the squad director stated that it was her talent and integrity that won her the spot. Lindsay states that she was happy to break down that door and spotlight trans people on one of the biggest stages for sports in the U.S. Lindsay also says, quote, I think more people need to see this. It's not because I want recognition. It's just to shed light on what's going on in the world. Wow, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. I just became a North Carolina Panthers fan. <laughs> and I don't even like football. Right? Does anybody here like football? I watch once in a while, but I'm not oh, normally man. a sports person. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Well, that's, good, that, good that for is her. Quite, that is quite the stage. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Well, that's great news. Thanks so much for sharing that, Nicolette. Yeah. Uh, I think that's exciting. Yeah. It's good to start with some good news first, because now we're going to go to some a news and analysis from our very frequent guest, Sheila Mangard, who has so much experience and um, has a long history uh, with the trans community. So I uh, really have some wisdom, as, as does Jean. Um, so Sheila, what's going on with you? Well, first of all, is that I wanted to, I guess if I was going to entitle this program, I was going to say, uh, maybe to quote Dickens line, that it's the best of times and the worst of times, because, um, this led me in discussing it with Jean today, talking about the relative advantages of visibility versus invisibility. And this is something that um, in the early days of being transgender, when it wasn't even called transgender, there were either transsexuals or there were cross-dressers. And in those days, the idea was that um, we were looking for some visibility just to remind people that we were there, but we were allowed to retreat back into a clinical context for our own individual lives without fearing that we were going to be assaulted in the public arena verbally. We would have problems in our daily lives with security issues, but we didn't have to worry that somehow we were being seen as a major social threat. <clears throat> so it tuned, tuned me in on something to bear in mind during Pride Month is that we can't ignore the context of the times that we're in where spontaneous and unpredictable violence towards our community 
can break out at a moment's notice because it's broken out in so many other areas. Nobody expects to be targeted because they're black in a grocery store. No one expects to be targeted because they're a child sitting in a classroom listening to their teacher one minute and faced with imminent death the next. We, on the other hand, are used to being periodically targets, and yet our own present uh, acceptance and that we are breaking through in entertainment, we're breaking through in sports, um, not so much in the high school sports, I don't want to be misunderstood there, but as I say, to have a cheerleader in a national football team would formerly have been beyond anybody's imagination. No one was really willing to take a chance on us. And so the fact that we are gaining mainstream acceptance is an extreme threat to people that want to perceive us as a threat as opposed to just being people trying to live our lives as fully as we can. So we never want to forget to look in the rearview mirror of our, of our consciousness and beware that when, when trouble emerges, it can emerge quickly and without, uh, without any, anything that gives us advance warning. And in the old days, trans people, gay people, drag queens, all of, of, of the community that I grew up in was very aware of that. And we had that sixth sense to look out for danger. And I simply wanted to alert our community during uh, Pride Month that we don't want to lose those skills because we may need them at a moment's notice. Great. Well, thank you, Sheila. That's really You're good welcome. to know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that Sheila is absolutely right about that. And um, I mean, I don't have much to say about that other than I agree. I haven't been around as long as the rest of you have. I'm only 31. But I, I know, yes, we are in uh, a time now when being trans is much more accepted, but we are still in danger to some extent. You know, uh, as far as we know, the, the transgender murder rate is higher than ever. So that is something to keep in mind, and thank you for sharing that. As far as, You're welcome. As, far as current events, um, just before the show, I was looking at uh, some some stuff online, and uh, just yesterday afternoon down in the San Francisco Bay Area in the East Bay, uh, which one would think is a pretty, you know, enlightened, safe space, uh, there was a uh, group of Proud Boys who um, stopped, invaded, um, you know, threatened. Uh, I guess uh, there was no physical violence, but um, completely disrupted a uh, drag queen story uh, story hour in a public library in the town of San Lorenzo, California, south of Oakland. Uh, and they were prepared to um, do violence. Uh, and uh, then I know that comes right on the heels of a, another story that I think made headlines uh, a couple of days ago uh, in Idaho of a similar uh, structured, planned assault uh, that got disrupted by law enforcement uh, of, a, of a pride event. Um, so I think this is evidence of uh, that the times are a little different. I mean, even from last year, uh, that there seems to be some sort of a uh, focused uh, intent by some people who would love to do us violence. Hmm. Wow. Well, Sheila, what do you think about all that? What everybody's had to say? Well, it's been very helpful because I think that uh, the, the life skills element of being transgender is something that in drag culture, you have your drag mom to basically be there to say, uh, to, to kind of correct you, to coach you, to, to give you the collective wisdom that she in turn return received from her drag mom. And so um, sometimes in the trans community, we were expected to enter, for instance, into a real life experience, which meant uh, no going back for a year, continual presentation, regardless of whether or not we were employed, unemployed, living in one part of town rather than another part of town, no matter what age we were. 
uh, it was a, a univocal clinical thing, and it was sort of like taking someone saying, here's how we're going to teach you to swim. We're going to throw everyone in the water at the same time, and those that drown, well, they drown, uh, you know, at least they were spared uh, whatever premature hormone gr- a, a treatment they might have received. And, and I always thought that that was clinically careless. And I thought, and this is from the people that are trying to help us, what about the people that are trying to hurt us? And so when I wrote my book, Transsexualism and Its Discontents, I touched on all these different topics of things that I've noticed through the whole evolution of of what we've gone through. And of course now the real paradox is that now the, the warfare is taking place about verbal distinctions. And you'll hear people like, I, like uh, for instance, well, um, I believe his name is Jordan Peterson, and um, the theory is that, that somehow the transgender community is trying to remake language and enforce it, um, and so we're like language police and we're seen as all-powerful forgetting that we're not the executioners of any of those things. If, if, a, if, a, if a university decides that certain things are microaggressions or that they are improper or a lacking of respect in an academic community, that's their determination, not necessarily ours. We appreciate the help that they're trying to give us, but unfortunately it's caused this huge reactionary response in conservative media and many people have built an entire career about somehow saying we've got to stop the transgenders before there's this huge it's as though we've lined up tanks on the border or something and are are breaking through barricades and i want to say do you know how powerless in many ways our community is we we do you know what our average incomes are do you know uh, the problems we have just uh, paying for surgeries, hormones, all the different things, how much discrimination there still is, even when there's something to protect us on the books. So how can you treat us as though somehow we are the aggressors? We are the ones trying to take over locker rooms. We're the ones setting records in swim teams. Um, Personally, when I was on a swim team in high school, and I was competing at that time as a boy, um, I went over to Wilson High one time, and there was a young woman my same age who swam a 200-yard breaststroke and beat my 100-yard uh, breaststroke record on both of her legs of her journey. I was like, oh, my God, I cannot believe. How does she do it? So the idea that somehow just because you happen to have a Y chromosome that you're automatically on a tennis team or many others better than the other person is 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 ridiculous. But as part of that whole thing of seeing us as a threat and always saying that somehow we're, we have an ulterior motive rather than just trying to solve our own inner dilemmas, whereas in the past we were allowed to work on a clinical aspect and deal with ourselves as individuals. And so I wanted to touch on that today, that we've got to dismantle this type of language that's directed at us because it has become so powerful that people build whole careers out of trans bashing. Yeah. I mean, we do have a voice of, we do have a newly found voice of prominence within the community. And I think that some of this to me seems like it's information theory. I mean, when you first get new information, it preoccupies your consciousness more than familiar information. So it seems a lot bigger than it really is because it's new and you're learning something new. So the shock wave of gender is hitting people, a lot of people for the first time in their lives where they're meeting people, they're seeing people like, it's not just something on the Jerry Springer show. It's like, it might be their neighbor's kids. It might be someone at work. It might be someone at church. It might even be one of their neighbors. It might even be them. But this like reality that there's always been transgender people that we all, that this is what we always know. And that now transgender people are having the courage to come out of the closet, you know, which refers to what you're talking about, Sheila, that, you know, people are extremely vulnerable. Transgender people, I mean, that's why all of this legislation that's targeting trans kids is just evil because they're targeting people who are the weakest 
and some of the most powerless people in their group of peers. And it's it's this legislation is designed to support them. It's not designed to some sort of attack on like traditional quote unquote other genders. It's designed to protect trans women or trans kids. I mean, anyways, um, anybody have thoughts on this and where we should go with this conversation? Well, I, I would like to make a comment here, which I think may be a good segue um, to this, uh, because the anti-trans le legislation that has actually been signed into law in, I don't know, 13, 14 states now, uh, and that's just 13, 14 states that have signed it into law. There's, I, think there's, I don't think there's a state in the union that hasn't had um, similar legislation introduced um, the point being that <clears throat> while we were talking just a moment before about, oh, I think some of the, um, the sociological, um, maybe psychological, um, more personal level effects of uh, the gender revolution um, of which we are part, um, I think as we bridge to the, the evidence that we can see happening. It's the, the whole point of, I think, what tonight needs to be is that this is not just, it's a, it's, it's a focused attack. It is a focused attack and there are elements of this interest that is focusing the attack that are have proven themselves to be absolutely intent on violence, absolutely intent on whether you call it evil, what, you know, but the, the point being that we can't just say, well, those are bad people and they don't, you know, they don't understand and blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, words aren't going to uh, protect us from an AR-15. Well, the legislation emerges out of a mindset, and one of the ones that's so easily correctable but never does seem to get corrected is that somehow we are gender relativists. And what, in, in a sense, when you say something is relative, you say, well, gender really doesn't matter. And if gender didn't matter to a trans person, there's no way we would go through all the trouble that we go through to try to accommodate ourselves to some measure of gender expression that will work for us. So we're the last people in the world to say everyone should feel our pain. That would be like having somebody with any other condition saying, you know, if, if someone came in with, with diabetes and said, um, I, we think everybody should be on insulin, that that's almost what they're saying to us. They're saying that somehow you want your question to be everybody's question. And so on the contrary, what we want is rooms that we can at least have the general comfort in our daily lives that everybody else has. So to put it the way they put it and use that as the basis for their legislation shows how faulty thinking results in faulty legislation. You know, I think a lot of this is just because it's new. I mean, I think that people who have never had to deal with this kind of information before are just having a first look at it. And honestly, when you first hear about things like this, you don't always, when you hear about something new that you didn't know about, you know, it takes a while to adjust. I mean, that's how it is for everyone. It doesn't matter what it is, you know, because the younger generation, is always going to be more radical than the older generation. They're always going to have a different perspective. There's going to be something 
that the older generation just can't quite deal with. And it's the same with culture. I mean, there's going to be new things that happen in culture or there's going to be an expansion of rights. And there's going to be some people who just can't handle the new information. And then there's going to be other people who are like, oh, that's no big deal. You know, I know somebody like that at work or I don't have a problem with that. And there's also going to be people who are like, oh, no, that's against the Bible. And why would somebody do that to themselves? That's horrible. You know, there's always going to be those people. And this is just part of what it looks like when we get our rights. You know, we could be in the closet where nobody knows we exist, except in like as freaks in freak movies or we could be out there so everybody knows we exist and we're everywhere. I mean, like today, I, I do this myself. Like today I was at the farmer's market and I was looking around to see who's trans, who's non-binary, you know? And it's like, I mean, I, I do it because I know that we're, we're out there, we're everywhere, you know? And that's gonna cause problems for people who aren't comfortable with us. What do you think, Sheila? Well, here's my thought on that. I used to feel kind of the same way, that time was in our favor. But what I'm noticing now is this isn't, this isn't the old incomprehension prejudice. This is designer prejudice that is designed to achieve a unification of a right-wing groups that oppose not just us, but but look at the resistance to, to black liberation. When I hear, even in fairly intelligent circles, people speaking about, we don't believe in woke culture, we've got to oppose wokeism, I say, oh, so really, what you really have a problem with is you have a real big problem of admitting that slavery actually existed in this country. Uh, you, 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 you think that that was some sort of an illusion? It's almost like being a Holocaust denier. It's, it has... It, it deserves zero respectability, and it doesn't take long to be woken up to the idea that, no, in point of fact, in the 1940s, there were concentration camps. Well, um, you know, our early trans people were, you know, um, the first, you know, surgery from Christine Jorgensen was 1953, and it got national coverage. It's 70 years later. How long does it take for people to know that there's such a thing as trans people? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, that's, yeah. In other words, they've had their time. This is something new, and it's there. that's what's so dangerous about it. This isn't yesterday's. This is almost a throwback to Ku Klux Klan kind of thinking. It's literally going backwards in time and trying to say, you know what? Hmm, maybe those days weren't so bad after all. Everybody knew exactly what they were allowed to do, and they, we better get back to those. And that's what—that's part of what making America great again is. I always wanted to say, well, what's the golden era? And I know now what their golden era is. Their golden era was when white power ruled. Well, I think, I mean, I definitely hear you, Sheila, and I hear you, Jean, but I still am an optimist. I think that the reason that there's all of this legislation going on right now and the reason that the Republicans have kind of hooked on to this and think that it's going to be some winning issue for them, it, I think the reason they think all of these things is because we have had so much influence and we've really like moved into a new space in the culture where we're so widely accepted and the idea that we have our rights is so widely accepted that the right wing is actually on the uh, defense right now. I mean, they're they're playing defense, and it's because they know that the the status quo that existed, you know, a generation ago is not going to be the new normal for this country. The new normal is going to be we're anti-racist, we're feminist, we're queer friendly we support trans rights you know we support the rights of bipoc movements 
you know, for liberation. And that's the new normal because these have always been normal. It's just that white supremacy has kept them from moving forward to their natural state of equality that, you know, is what's guaranteed in our constitution. So any thoughts? I was just going to say, I agree. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this sudden attack on trans rights started after gay marriage was federally legalized. You know, it's, I think conservatives went, well, we lost the fight on gay marriage. Now let's go after trans people. That'll be our next target because they're trying so desperately hard to cling to their anti LGBT views in any way that they can. They're, they're refusing to push forward. So that's why, you know, we're just kind of their next target. Well, these are all such great comments and people have got so much wonderful insight into this issue. Um, it looks like we're reaching the end of this segment of the show, so I'm going to ask for kind of closing thoughts. And I'll start with Sheila. Do you have any closing thoughts, Sheila? Yeah, I have a, a response to, to, for some people, this is a knee-jerk, uh, a sense of disquietude that the world that they're living in is not the world that they assumed was going to be normative forever. And some of those will base that or attempt to base it upon some particular reading of scripture. Some of them will base it upon just what what their own memories told them about the way things were. But I, I think there's something different in play here. And I think it's it's planned, it's thoughtful, and it's even hypocritical. I think at some level... It's, it's an example of modern opportunism. So this is how stuff happens. And to that kind of evil, you have to resist. You got to go the Larry Kramer route. That's why we had ACT UP. And kind of that's where I'm coming from. Thank you so much. Um, Jean or Nicolette, do either of you have any concluding thoughts? Um, sure. I guess I would just like to say... Um, I think it's pretty clear that trans people have more visibility than ever, more representation than ever, more acceptance than ever, but we do still have a long way to go, clearly. And yes, we're still in danger. Yes, we still need to be safe and protect ourselves, but it's also important that we keep fighting for our rights and keep fighting for equality because that's the only way we are going to make it to a better future. Thank you. And Jean, do you have any closing thoughts? Well, I completely agree with Nicolette. It's not a question of if, it's a question of how, where, and when. Well, thank you. Um, you've been listening tonight to Transpositive here on KBOO Community Radio. Um, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Transgender people don't live here. I've never met anyone who's transgender. I swear I don't know someone who's transgender. Transgender and non-binary people like me hear this all the time. But according to the HRC Foundation, there are more than 2 million transgender people in the United States. We live in every community across this country. So when you hear about politicians pushing forward discriminatory bills... Know this. These bills address problems that aren't even real. Problems that don't actually exist. But we do. 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 And we need your support.